Aperture makes a light box called the 4545 softbox. And I think I think it's specifically made for their smaller lights like the Amaran COBX 60X. I think I remember them announcing that at the same time they announced the weird handle thing for the COB. Right. Which that's cool. Don't yeah. have one of those yet. 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 So I'm looking for a light box for the COB. And I think Cobb is actually a style of light. I keep calling that light just a Cobb light. And what it is is it's the like they have enough a bunch of LEDs jammed together and it's like the style of yep. light emittance. That is what it is. And it's like it's an Amarand subcategory of aperture. And this is a Cobb light, and it's the 60X and 60XS and 60D. Yeah. And I wish it was easy. Like, we call, we call it Cobb for shorthand, but I think there's other Cobb lights. Maybe that's confusing. <sighs> Names. Woof. Anyway, I'm looking for I'm looking for a softbox for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want, you know, soft lights. I want them to be as big as possible. But I also don't want it to be... You know, I want it to be super portable, just like the light is. And I already have a 47-inch softbox, but when I put it on the Amaran, it'll hold it. But I'm really worried that the the metal screw in the plastic body of the light is just going to rip off. Uh, like it, what, are you talking about like where it mounts to the tripod? Yeah, it, it inspires no confidence. Uh, and so, like when you look at the bottom of that Amaran 60X COP, uh, it, it's a plastic body, and then there's a metal quarter twenty socket. Yeah. And then it comes with a uh, another, you know, a screw that screws into the socket yeah. that it has like a light stand sized, you know, thing. And then that sits into the adjustable bracket, which then sits on your light right. stand or whatever. Or you can just screw it into anything that you want. But that I've had too many times where it's like, here's a metal socket in a plastic housing. And it's like, that is going to get ripped out of that housing if you put too much weight on it or too much torque on it. And I just don't have a lot of confidence in it yet of being able to hold a ton, a ton of weight. And that 47 inch softbox is like three pounds or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a big softbox. Yeah, and it's not so much that it's three pounds, but like the moment that it's creating, you know, here's a bunch of weight that's off axis and then it's creating this torsional moment mm. around the around that screw head. So I was looking for smaller versions and boy, is it hard to find like the perfect softbox. It really is. It's too many options. I'm like, do I want square or do I want round? And like, do I need it to come with the grid or do I not need it to come with the grid? And obviously having the grid is a nice option. Should I just take my existing lantern and buy a skirt for it? Mm-hmm. Or should I buy an actual softbox? And then, you know, like what size? I want it to be as big as possible. So I'm looking at like 36 inch or 30 inch or 24. 24 seems too small. And then some of them you have to like assemble. And some of them are just like pop out style. I hate the assembly stuff because the bigger ones I have are like that where you can you can leave the those little metal pieces in the skirt, you know, like you can kind of have it sort of set up, but then you still have to bend all those little metal pieces in a place. It's like putting a tent together. Hate doing that on set. Oh, and then it always falls out. Like my, my Godox 47 inch softbox. It's like, it's all in there and I can just kind of collapse it and stick it in the bag. But when I take it out of the bag, like half of those little pegs have come out of the sockets mm. on the thing and I have to like reline them all up and then oh, it's just, it's just yeah. really annoying. And so I looked, I just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't find like the perfect thing. I was looking at um, the Lightbox Mini, which is $130 from Aperture. And like, I guess it's like a more of like a 30 inch smaller version, but I couldn't justify buying that over the $60 4545, which is square and it's smaller, but that one packs down into like a little pouch yeah. versus, you know, this big bag that you have to kind of bring separately. The whole appeal of the Amaran light that I have is like I can fit it in my backpack, basically. Right. So you want a softbox that goes mm-hmm. with that. It's just, man, I was like, oh, I'm just going to buy a softbox. Like I just need to, you know, budget of, you know, less than a hundred bucks. I just need a softbox. And I spent so much time looking for a stinking <laughs> softbox. I wish it was easier. Yeah. I'm surprised there aren't more better options. It feels like everything is just the same. Like here's a Bowen mount with a stupid thing on a stupid thing. And like there's different variations where like maybe some of them have that an extra light cover that goes right over the light source right. inside. And then they have the separate level of diffusion to kind of help disperse the light more. Yeah. My, I think my 24 inch one has that. I think that helped. That's a good idea. And that helps a lot. And that's kind of how you distinguish between a good one or a not. Because if you, if you don't have that extra layer in the softbox itself, it'll like you don't get good separation or diffusion, I think. Hmm. Like you'll get a hot spot right on the right on the main yeah. diffusion material. And then I also wondered like maybe I should just give up trying to like mount something to this and just do my, my diffusion totally separate. But then I have to have a separate stand. Right. Yeah, it's all trade off, isn't it? I don't know. I feel like there's just not not a good option. 
and I just wish there was more pop-out tiny versions. What I really wanted was a Bowen mount that has a light stand connection point on it. Right, like a Bowen on both sides. So you right. could have it as a go-between between the cob light and the... Exactly. I wanted like the Bowen for the light to connect to and then the you know, male-female kind of adapter, but they right. don't make those. Yeah. They make them that are, here's a flash, and you can mount the flash inside the Bowen, and then right. that will adapt too. And then Zhuin has that version for their new lights where you can like mount your light to the back of this Bowen thing, and then the softbox to the front of it. Right. Yeah, that seemed really cool, but you can't, it doesn't seem like you can get one of those that's Bowen to Bowen. Yep. I think we start a Kickstarter, and we make this Bowen to Bowen tripod thing, because now all these cool small lights are coming out that are like 60 watts or 100 watts. And it's like, I don't really, if I could support it, it's like it's like the effect of, uh, um, of having that tripod screw on the lens. Yeah. We're like, I don't want to have, I want the weight, you know, centered. Put it on the Bowen mount. Yeah, there you go. Just saying. The other option I've thought about for the Cobb 60 is using an umbrella. Because that mount for the uh, the mount that goes from the light to the light stand has an umbrella clamp on it. And so you could get, you know, normal photography umbrella that's like a diffusion thing that you can shoot through. You could get that, use that as a softbox. The one problem it has is that it's going to have more light spill than something like an actual softbox. Because you don't have the opaque pieces on the side, you know, that would kind of like limit your light spill. But in terms of something that's cheap and really portable and large, I think an umbrella might actually be the most effective way i didn't realize that it had a slot for an umbrella on that mount yeah yeah That's it does. super handy mm-hmm. it's just a, like a little hole basically in the bracket and you can the, the umbrella you know has a metal rod sticking out of it and you can stick it in that bracket and screw it down i don't know if you remember that interview project that i shot almost a year ago at this point that i haven't done any editing for uh, where i borrowed your camera my camera mm, and i bought the ninja yeah. specifically for it i remember that um i borrowed an umbrella for that shoot like I brought my modifiers, but it was a little too obtrusive for mm-hmm. the kind of the setting that I was doing. And so I used my VL150 and I shot it into an umbrella that I propped up just to give more light. Now, are you shooting the, the light through the umbrella or are you bouncing it off? I was the bouncing umbrella? it off. Okay. Like I had it shooting into and then you yeah. know, away from the away from my subjects and then coming back. So I have done that before and it, it, it mostly worked. It's another option at least. But mm. I think the I'm interested to see that 4545 one. Yeah. Do you not have that one? No, no. I, I have a cheapo, newer 24-inch one. Oh, okay. I thought you actually had the same one. No. Well, this one runs 60 bucks, so it's not yeah. bad. It seems like it, it folds down. It also looks annoying to assemble, which I'm not looking forward to. And uh, it's it's 45 centimeters is where that yeah. comes from. So yeah, it's basically the same size, 24 by 24 square. That's not, uh, that math does not, not add up. 45 is a foot and a half. That's 18 inches. Oh, it's even smaller. <laughs> it's too small <laughs> we'll see uh, find out tomorrow if uh, i may be selling a 45 by 45 softbox if anyone's interested <laughs> <laughs> some great math skills there oh boy <laughs> welcome back to the camera gear podcast i'm daniel and i'm lucas and we're back today to talk more about the gear we use for photo and video You ready to get into it? Yeah. Yeah. What do we got? We're starting with another legendary lens. How many of these legendary lenses could there possibly be? Uh, (laughs) Lucas, they can't all be legendary. There have been so many lenses made that, I mean, even if there was a hundred, which let's just say it, there's a hundred, there's a (laughs) hundred on my list, Daniel. Oh my gosh. And we'll get through all of them, but that's a mere small percentage of all the lenses that have ever been made. So, I mean, I I feel like... You know, 100, 100 is pretty good, and that's the end of my list. Uh, if you say so. Yep. I'm going to have to, like, write all these down, and then whenever we're done with this, I'll post it. And we're not, we don't do this segment every episode. That means we're going to have to at least push to, you know, at least episode three or 400. Yeah. In order I mean, to even, even get to it. Golly. Yeah. And you're, you also need to write them down because it feels very possible to me that you could accidentally cover the same legendary lens twice. No, I, I got I got them all in here. We did, uh, to recap, for all those keeping count at home, uh, we started with Helios Prime and the Swirly Boys was number two, and that was the Helios 44-2, which now I now own. I would love to own all these legendary lenses. All hundred. Oh, boy, especially the one that I'm going to talk about today. <laughs> oh, that's never, that's never going to happen. Uh, what was the first one that we talked about? Oh, my gosh. I swear I wrote these down up here. Was that the least legendary or the most legendary? Um, I mean, 
That was a good question. Yeah. Uh, well, there was question. well, there was the they don't make them like they used to, which was the Zeiss fifty millimeter one point something. I clearly know everything that's on this list. That's the the Ultron fifty millimeter one point. Well, that was recent though. Yeah, that was the last one. Um, we talked about the King of Buka, which was the Pentacon one thirty five f two point eight, and then uh, we talked about the okay, and then the first one was um, oh yeah, that's right. How could I forget? <laughs> uh, this is knocked your everyday lens. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that would be uh, Seeing in the Dark, the original 58 millimeter. Uh, I guess it was a 1.2 uh, Nikon knocked. Right. I do remember that. That is the current list. And uh, to that list, we will be adding today the Canon FD ASPH F1.5 SSC lens. This is a 50 millimeter 1.2 FD lens. And now we're going to get into it. Okay. So Canon, you may know them, uh, made for their full frame, you know, SLR cameras, FD mount. um, And they made a whole series of lenses between 1971 and like 1985. And um, during this time, they were like, we want to get into the cinema space. We want to make cinema lenses. But to make cinema lenses to compete with the likes of, you know, Carl Zeiss and, oh my gosh, I just drew a blank, Panavision, Cook. You know, those kind of those kind of manufacturers, it would take so much money and, and energy and research. And so they said, what if we took these super swell full frame 35 millimeter, which is large format on video, but 35 millimeter coverage lenses that we have and rehouse them and make them into cinema lenses. And so they did. And they released the Canon K35 cinema lenses, which weren't super widely popular at the time. Most people didn't need full frame on cinema. You know, everyone was shooting Super 35 because it was all in film. But directors like Stanley Kubrick really liked these set of primes. And they released a full set, you know, like 18, 24, 35, 50, 85, right? So K35 was a series, not like a 35 millimeter lens. No, K35 was the series of 35 SLR coverage primes for cinema when they're they're geared and all that stuff and they came out with a very split with a with a weird mount that I can't even remember. You can still rent these today. You can still buy a set of these today, but because of what they are and how they were made, they're obscenely expensive. <laughs> like at least a couple of years ago, dollar for dollar, they were the most expensive lenses that you could buy new or vintage. Oh wow. And the reason that they're so expensive is for one, if you're looking for a full frame coverage lens, which now that's a thing, right? You have these Arial F cameras that are actually, you know, 35 millimeter. If you're looking for something that has like really good skin tones and is softer, not as like digital or sharp or technical, uh, these K35s are fantastic. They're very, they're very warm. They're very soft. Uh, they have just, it's just like a creamy look to them. Mm. And so it, it's, you've seen them in movies like, um, I think I have a list here, Alien, Her, American Hustle, Manchester by the Sea. Those are a few movies that that were shot on K35s. Um, But you're looking at like $200,000 for a full set of primes for these things. They're crazy expensive. I guess there just aren't that many vintage cinema lenses that have full frame coverage. Mm -hmm. Right. That's exactly why. But we kind of alluded to the first part here that these were built off of the photography lenses before them. And so you can still, you can buy FD lenses for a lot cheaper mm-hmm. that had the same optical performance, like identical optical performance as these K35s, which are insanely expensive. So what do you get for the K35 then? Is it like declicked aperture? Some, yeah, like it's a different gear. Mount? It's, like, it's the housing. It's rehoused for, for cinema use. Yeah. And you can buy an FD lens and get it rehoused and it'll cost you like, you know, three or $4,000 to have it rehoused because I have to like reset all the glass and everything. But they actually use FD lenses to repair K35 lenses. Interesting. So, okay. Canon was the first manufacturer to release aspherical lenses for SL th- SLR35, you know, 35 millimeter film cameras. And aspherical is really important because it reduces the amount of lens of pieces of glass that you need and it reduces um, conical aberration. And it's lighter and it's just, it's, it's more complex, but it's better in so many different ways. Yeah, and a lot of modern lenses use mm-hmm. those. Right. But the very first aspherical lenses that Canon came out, which was a 24, a 50, 55, and an 85, they were hand beveled aspherical elements. That sounds expensive. Mm-hmm. And so like, if you think of a normal lens as like a, like a teardrop, you know, these kind of have like a, like a mound on them because oh, they're yeah. not spherical, aspherical, right. right? And so 
these had to be painstaking, like, you know, to the micron <laughs> as far as, you know, tolerance, hand-carved glass. Yeah. Art- artisanal hand-carved lenses. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is the first generation. The second generation of these were machined. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they are significantly cheaper. But the first generation of the aspherical FD lenses is what the K35s are built on. So if you're looking for, you know, that K35 look with the smoothness and, you know, like the skin tones and the warmth and all that stuff, you got to get the first gen, right? And so my lens today is the 55 1.2, which is, you know, they call them super speed because they're 1.2, which was really fast back then. Even the Noct, which was like see in the dark, was a 1.2, right? So super fast, you know, super speed, F1.2, 55 millimeter with, you know, the first hand carved aspherical elements and it has, you know, the coating and everything. These lenses, if you're looking for one, are going to run you probably about four or $5,000. Wow. If you can find it. <laughs> and like, and they're really hard to find because there's the versions that they made like another 55 1.2 that's not aspherical. And then they have the machine versions and then they have, there's so many versions of these lenses. So it's really easy to like get the knockoff version of the, you know, the 55 millimeter SSC 1.2 that's not right. aspherical instead of the aspherical one and, and that sort of thing. So hard to find, really expensive, but really cool. Well, and if they're using them to repair the K35 lenses, then that's also cutting into the supply of ones that may even exist. So yep. there probably aren't that many of them out there. Exactly. So you're looking for first gen, which had a chrome ring instead of a black ring and uh, the hand car. So yeah. Wow. That's, that's it. That's my legendary lens. Um, it's your uh, your first aspherical, really cool history, Canon, Canon glass. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that they made the full-frame cinema glass. That's pretty neat. Yep. And I, and I would not have guessed that it was the same as the FD lenses, which I've definitely heard about. Yeah, I have an FD lens that's a 50 mil 1.8. And I was like, oh man, does that mean like this one's really cool? It's not cool. It's, just, it's <laughs> not fine. cool at all. What I did learn, which I kind of knew before, was that like, and like in this, even in this specific line, the 85 and the 24 use a uh, Thor rated glass, which is a manufacturing process in which uh, they make it radioactive. No. <laughs> and so uh, the 55, which I put on my list, is not radioactive. So everyone who's out there collecting every legendary lens that we talk about, you don't have to worry. Yeah. Not, not getting any of that uranium glass right. lens going on. But if you do buy the 24 or the 85, they are uh, radioactive. Interesting. So watch out for that. Was that just a side effect of the process or is it? did they pick that for some specific reason? Let me read you this very specific text that I copied from Google. Thor-rated glass is a glass material used in the manufacturing of optical systems, specifically photography lenses. It is useful to the process due to the high refractive index. Thor-rated glass is radioactive due to the inclusion of thorium dioxide, oxide of radioactive element. Thorium. Now we know. Yep, that totally explained it. Perfect. All right. I don't know if I actually had a name for this uh, for this segment. Uh, oh boy, this is embarrassing. I'm supposed to have a name for it. Hold on. Uh, it's going to be a play on Ice Vertical. I'm going to workshop it later. All right. Uh, but this has been Lucas's legendary lens list. Play the outro music. I'm not going to hit you with the jingle this time. Oh no, <laughs> man. <laughs> All right. Now that we've indulged your legendary lens list and gotten you one closer <laughs> to that hundred lenses you want to talk about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's talk about something that was made this century. So what do we have next on, on the list today? Well, I mean, well, this is right here. Daniel on Resolve follow-up for episode four. Episode I, think I, four I think I put this on there. You did. And episode four was a long time ago. I don't remember anything about that. So you're going to have to remind me. Okay. So on episode four, you were talking about how you are going to have to learn Resolve. Mm-hmm. And you maybe weren't totally looking forward to it, even though you absolutely love it now because it's the best. Way better than Final Cut. And uh, you were talking about boy, it sure would be interesting to like use this on an iPad because the M2 iPad just released with, you know, DaVinci Resolve coming out for it. And, you know, all of a sudden it is a hundred months later. I can't remember when we recorded this sometime in the fall. So now it's the spring. Yep. And you are one iPad and one MacBook Pro richer (laughs) and have done multiple projects in DaVinci Resolve and have made yourself a better person for it. And so I'm curious now, you know, full, full circle, Working on the iPad, working in Resolve. What do you, what are you thinking? How's it Man, going? A lot has changed since the fall. I like you said, I'm an iPad richer and MacBook richer and a lot poorer in terms of money. Oh <laughs> well, yeah. Who but, who know. needs money? That's what I yeah. say. Who needs money when you can acquire camera gear? <laughs> Welcome to the camera gear podcast. <laughs> yep. That's the first time we've invoked camera gear podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. So I mean it is it is a lot of stuff. I guess to try and take it one thing at a time, 
I mean, using Resolve definitely feels worth it at this point. I'd say it wasn't as hard to learn as I thought it was going to be. I was kind of intimidated by it to start with. And really, like after doing a project, I feel like I know my way around. There's still a lot I don't know. I haven't messed much with the Fairlight stuff yet, just the sound section. I don't really know how the color grading works, but in terms of gathering up footage, doing edits, stuff like that, it wasn't that hard to figure out. I feel like I understand the basics of it. And I mean, I'm not as fast as I was in Final Cut, but I can move around pretty well. Overall, I'm really happy with it. I mean, I feel like the collaboration features have been huge for the projects we've worked on. I don't think we would be taking on some of the stuff we're taking on now if we were still using Final Cut, which I think is a pretty big vote of confidence for using Resolve. Like, if you're in a team environment like we are, I think that using something like this is super, super important. As an aside, I was reading recently about how TV shows are edited and something like some huge percentage, like almost every TV show and, and movie right now is edited on Avid, uh, which is not something that we ever talk about. And, you know, if all you do is watch YouTube and live in that world, like you probably don't really know what it is. Maybe you've heard that word, but you don't know much about it because it's not something that you see like casual people using. But the reason people use it is because it's really big on these collaboration features. And if you're working on something like a TV show, you're going to have three or four editors all working on the project at the same time. And it turns out that Avid was the first one that actually built in support for that, where you could like lock bins and have multiple people working at the same time. And pretty much just for that reason, people use Avid on these big projects. That's interesting. And that, that's kind of the main reason we switched to Resolve for yeah. our projects was the collaboration features. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it seems like Resolve's kind of like on that same trajectory and they're just a you know, a little bit behind Avid, but they're getting it now. And I mean, for us, it's been great so far. And so I'm really happy with that. So that's one thing I really like about it. But even edited in Avid, they still, a lot of the color processing is done in Resolve. Like that is like the pro color tool right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, on big projects like that, there's kind of different stages of it. And it, the people that are editing the project aren't really caring about color at all. And then it basically gets handed off to a colorist to work on. And they may use Resolve, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, in terms of the actual edit, it seems like a lot of that's done in Avid because of that collaboration stuff. So I thought that was interesting in the context of what we do. But all that's been great. I also have really liked how Resolve is with render files and with the proxy file workflow. That's been a huge improvement. One thing that used to always frustrate me on Final Cut is how much space I needed on my computer to work on projects. I'd be working on YouTube videos and I would sometimes I'd have two in progress at once. And it just always ended up that I was using, you know, 700 gigs on my computer. And with a one terabyte SSD, like that was getting really limiting. And I was thinking, you know, when I buy a new computer, I'm going to have to get something that's four terabytes, eight terabytes. Like I need, I just need more space. I don't understand why, like how that's so different. I always wondered if, you know, maybe different software did things, you know, differently. And it feels like Final Cut is basically re-encoding everything yeah. in order to optimize for speed. And you can basically tell because, you know, your mouse cursor can scrub as you look through it. And that's kind of the thing that I've missed most switching from Final Cut to Resolve was just being able to quickly scrub through the timeline and scrub through the clips and like add things and that sort of that sort of workflow. But I feel like a lot of that is enabled because of all the rendering and re-rendering that Final yeah. Cut does. And it's at the expense of your of your disk space. I mean, if you had 50 gigs of footage, you would easily, easily generate 10 times that in render files. It's a huge difference. I didn't expect there to be that much of a difference. But I mean, by comparison and resolve, I feel like I'm using almost no hard drive space. Yeah, I mean, I checked that cache clip folder every so often and see you know like what did i what have we cached what have we smart rendered and that sort of thing and sure i'm working with proxy files which are you know quarter size of the original but like i mean i've barely crossed 20 gigs ever in the cache folder yeah. which is crazy with, with multiple projects in flight mm -hmm. multiple yeah. projects in flight with lots of footage i mean like the last one that we edited was 260 gigs of, of footage and it was essentially nothing yeah so yeah the impact on disk space is Mm -hmm. crazy mm -hmm. and the proxy file workflow is kind of a big part of that that also works super well in resolve so we've been able to keep all of the original files for these projects on an external ssd and then you know you plug that in one time generate your proxies and then you basically don't need that ssd until you want to do like a final export you know or if you want to if you want to export something and have people review it you probably want to use the original clips but 
basically you can do all your editing with the proxies and then just plug in that SSD. Yeah. And that also works super smoothly. No problems at all with that. It's a great feature. Yeah. And I'll, I'll plug in the external SSD when I do color just because, you know, if you're doing sharpening or anything like that, it's really nice to have those original clips. Right. But it just, it works. It works very smoothly. I know that Final Cut has proxy workflows. But I think you have to generate those prox those proxies separately, like outside of Final mm -hmm. Cut. Mm -hmm. Then you have to link them in. And I've never, I was always a little too intimidated to try it in Final Cut. But in Resolve, it's like right click, make proxy. Yeah. And it's just, it's so easy. But you can also use their proxy tool, which is just this whole separate standalone deal. And if you have like a shared workflow with people, you can set up, here's our folder for original media. Here's our folder for our proxies. And you can make this tool that just monitors the original media folder yeah. and creates proxies if you dump into it. And so if you guys have, if you're, you have like a shared folder that you're working in, you can just chuck all the new media that you have into this original media folder and then the proxies are, are going to generate in the background. That's pretty cool. And if you're running it on like a, so you have like a separate server, or like a Windows server or something or Synology or whatever, probably not Synology, but you have like a separate computer that is doing that file sharing, then that computer can make the proxies for you and it's not messing with your edit machines. There's so much flexibility and it's like so cool the level that you can take these tools to, especially for like multiple people in collaborative yeah. workflow. Yeah, I, and it feels like we've kind of just scratched the surface of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's like for things where, I'm a, where I was a single editor, maybe like like sticking with Final Cut. If I'm not going to do like a ton of grading and already have my LUTs and stuff, I can see, you know, staying with Final Cut. But honestly, I, I got burned so bad and had to like four switch to resolve. I haven't, I've opened up Final Cut a couple times. I was like, oh, this is so familiar. <laughs> I don't want to do a full project in Final Cut yeah. ever again because I'm just, I'm worried that I'm going to run into the, like the same frame drop issue and be stuck. And I just, I can't do it. I'm like, I'm done with Final Cut. I don't blame you. In terms of the performance, I kind of agree with you that you can tell that Resolve isn't quite as smooth. It does drop frames sometimes you play back. The biggest thing I notice is that when we have multiple effects on a project, or on a clip rather, sometimes when you try and play it back, it'll you know skip a little bit or it just won't really play. And so that can kind of be annoying, but honestly hasn't been a huge problem. I also feel like the render times have been... So like for the final render, I think they call it export. That has been in line with what I would expect from Final Cut. Like, I don't feel like it's way slower than Final Cut was or anything like that. So yeah, good. I agree the, the performance has been good. It just, it just works. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. Is there anything that you specifically miss about Final Cut um, having switched? Oh, that's a good question. And unlike, do you see yourself using Final Cut for other projects? I don't really think so. I mean, honestly, the, the biggest thing on my mind is that if somebody was brand new and they had a Mac, I feel like I might still suggest Final Cut to them. I don't I don't know. I mean, Resolve has the free option, which is really appealing, but I do still feel like Final Cut is a little bit more user friendly and a little bit easier to get started with. So I guess I kind of miss that, but otherwise not, not really. I mean, like if you're coming from iMovie and then upgrading to Final Cut, that's a total you know, make sense workflow. Yeah. You know, you're you're living in the magnetic timeline and man, it's like I've I, I watched so many videos of someone like, oh, I'm switching to Final Cut for a week and trying it out. And like when you're using the magnetic timeline and Final Cut and like connected clips and all this stuff, it's a totally different way of like thinking yeah. and working. And you just you have to completely change your editing mindset. And whenever I moved from, you know, Premiere to Final Cut, it was there was serious growing pains. That first project took me probably four times as long as it should have just because of learning how to use that magnetic timeline. And I feel like for a new editor, you know, if they're not coming from something like iMovie and they're totally green, I think the way that, you know, tracks work in something like Premiere or Resolve maybe make a little more sense than dealing with a magnetic timeline and like everything snapping together. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like if you have a like a growth path in video editing and you're going to get into like collaborative projects and that sort of thing, it's like don't sink time, waste the time into a different software. Yeah, I, mean, I, I like, do agree with that. Which is kind of like, I already know Final Cut and it's so fast, but I mean, I would rather develop the skills of, you know, editing better and faster in resolve rather than like going back to final cut for other projects because it's every every video is an opportunity to like better better my skill set right i do agree if you think this is something you want to do long term i think resolve's the right choice it's, it's just so interesting and it's like it, it seriously comes down to collaboration i feel like if i didn't have that problem with that edit and if i wasn't working on projects with you or other people as far as needing to collaborate 
Final Cut probably still makes the most sense. Interesting. You can get, you can get, I could have got like a plugin or something for color and not yeah. have to like relearn all that stuff. And maybe, maybe I would have stayed in, in that world, but man, I don't know. Resolve has just gotten really good and has really so has. many, so many good reasons to, yeah. to use it. Let me cover two more points on this topic. So we mentioned that I got a new MacBook and an iPad. Let me kind of give a quick overview of what my experience has been on both of those. So I was coming from an M1 MacBook Air, which is the same computer you have. And I used that on a project for a while. And then in the middle of the project, I switched to the new MacBook. So first of all, it was impressively easy to pull in that project on the new computer. Didn't take long at all to get everything set up right. I just had to fix path mappings. I mean, it was super easy. So that was nice. And then in terms of performance, my MacBook Pro has an M1 Max. And so it literally has four times the GPU cores of that M1 Air. And I noticed it a little bit in playback. I mean, I feel like when I try and playback clips that have effects on them, it seems like it's smoother than it was on the M1 Air. I didn't try both side by side. So, you know, it's kind of hard to tell. And I will say I did still have some skips on the M1 Max. So that wasn't perfect. I mean, I can say for certain that like on that last project that we worked on, even playing back at a quarter resolution, there was some stuff that I just I couldn't play on the Uh M1. But okay. the the M1 Max that you have has those uh, ProRes engines in it. Yeah. And so if it is rendered down to ProRes, it's just going to be faster. Yeah. I, I never had anything that I couldn't play. I just saw right. some frame drops and some of the effects. Mm-hmm. So. I Man, some of that stuff, it was like, I got to turn off like three of these effects because it'll play back <laughs> at two frames a second. Oh, man. So I guess there is an improvement there. But then the big improvement that I saw was in the render times. So... One of the projects we did, you and I both rendered it on our computers with the same settings. On the M1 Air, I think it took about 37 minutes. And on the M1 Max, it took eight minutes. It is remarkably faster. Yeah. It's almost exactly um, in line with the core count. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, well, yeah, it's, it is. And I mean, to me, that's a, that's a noticeable improvement because a lot of times I'll be working on a project and I want to do an export and then just kind of sit back and just watch it like a video. And then that kind of gives me ideas for what else I need to change, you know, what I want to do. Or sometimes it's the end of my work day, but I know I want to get something out for review. And so I want to start that render. And then as soon as that's done, I want to be able to upload it to frame.io or email it or whatever so that somebody can review it. And so as silly as it seems to say like, oh, that 20 minutes matters, it really kind of does. And mine was almost a full half hour faster than yours. And that feels worth it. I'm happy with that. There's some edits that I've done that are on the order of like an hour or more, or two hours or whatever. I've had, I've had, there was one that I did where I did some uh, motion tracking, like way too much motion tracking, that sort of thing. And I think the first render out took 23 hours. That's and ridiculous. if that took like, two hours that's like watch it and then make some changes that same day versus like now i have to find another day to come back and like work on this thing and boy i sure would like more cores daniel (laughs) tell me more about how great they are i think you know how great they are you just haven't convinced yourself to spend the money on it yet just you know late later or whatever i i do also feel like the larger screen has been really nice i i noticed the extra size it's a 16 inch instead of a 13 inch and resolve is not friendly on screen space it feels like you need a lot it adjusts itself and that sort of thing but man like i wish you could like lower the color panels or having to like make micro adjustments to the track height in the edit page is so annoying. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do some retiming. And so then you have to like click the thing, open the retiming tool. And then like it pushes your, your, all your tracks up and then you do it and then you undo it. And then it's like, now I got to readjust all my windows. (laughs) And maybe if you just had a little more room, it wouldn't be so much of a problem. I was really unsure whether I wanted 14 or 16 inch. Really glad I went with 16. I think that's been great. Yeah, I still think I would go 14, Just, but that's just me. You like that portability. So. Yeah. For me, instead of doing that, I got the iPad Pro instead, and I haven't really had much of a chance to use that with Resolve yet. I've only done one or two things in it, probably going to be doing more in the next week or two. So far, it's been good. I mean, you're kind of limited on what you can do. You get the color tab and the cut tab. Do you get the media browser? You don't get the media browser. You really just get really? those two. The cut tab is similar to the edit tab, so you can pull in media on that tab, but like you can't really, you couldn't really like set up a new project on the iPad as far as I can tell. Mm. So, you know, there's some weird hacks you can do to get those other tabs that they may have patched some of those at this point, but there were some weird things you could do. It seems like they're going to bring all that functionality eventually, but they don't have all that today. It's going to be really nice whenever they, and that's, that's a full featured suite yeah. on, on, on mm-hmm. iPad. That's 
Looking forward to that. The biggest thing on my mind that I'm worried about is that the cut tab still is missing some functionality. So like the thing I'm thinking about now is that when you have multicam clips, there's some limitations with what you can do with syncing multicam clips on the cut tab. It's like some things don't work right unless you have time code. It's like a totally different feature. So you have the you have multicam that you can use in the edit page, but then whenever you go to the cut page, it's a it's a synced clip yeah. type thing. And it's a really cool feature in that like when you sync your clips, you can then drop your A-roll, whatever, you know, your A-roll in, um, and then you go to your other clip and you just kind of scrub through and you find the pieces that you like and you in out and then you just drop it in and it will automatically align that piece to wherever it corresponded to in the, in the synced clip itself. And so it makes it really easy to like scrub through all of your B-roll and yeah. find all the specific ones that you want and not have to worry about, you know, okay, now where do I drop that in? It's just, you can just pick it. Yeah. And I think it really speeds all that up, but it relies on, you have to either have to do time code sync or audio wave sync. And as we discussed before, the audio wave sync in Resolve isn't good. They're like they have all these really, really good AI features, but you can have two clips of that have the same audio. You record it at the exact same time with just two different sauces, and then you hit sync, and you just can't yeah. do it. And it doesn't seem like they give you the ability to to manually adjust that. Right, sync. and that's that's the other annoying thing. Like with multicam on edit, you can say sync to audio, and it will fail. But then it will give you the multicam, and then you can manually yep. do it, which is annoying. But you can do it. You can't do it on the cut page. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating for me because like tomorrow night, you and I are going to shoot an interview Yep, and we're going to use two or three cameras and we're going to record sound, but we're not going to use time code. And so I can't use the cut page because, because I can't, I won't have a way to sync it. And so I've got this really cool workflow that I could do with an iPad, but I can't actually do it because I wouldn't be able to sync it with the multi. It sure would be nice to be able to like just set it up on the iPad and like you you plug in your your drive and like you just just Mm -hmm. do the thing and then you can move it over to your computer, finish stuff on the computer, but you can't. That's a disappointment for sure. And I really hope that's high on their list to fix because that's really frustrating. I'm sure it is. They, They seem to be really pushing that software forward. I think that DaVinci really wants, or Blackmagic wants this to be like the editing suite. It really feels like they're coming for Avid and all at the same time coming for Final Cut and and Premiere Mm -hmm. and really like pushing their way into the market. And I mean, I like what they're doing, so I hope it gets better. Yep. We're going to see what happens first. Either they're going to fix this feature or I'm going to buy some of those Deity timecode devices so that I can use that feature. We'll we'll see which one happens first. Man, I I sure would like some some timecode sync in my life. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be nice. But I can't even get you to spend money on a computer, so you're probably not going to buy a little time code box. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just let you get those. Yeah. I have all these legendary lenses to buy. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you've got to buy a K35 cinema lens. That's, yep. That's going to kill the budget for a while. T- tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's that's been my experience so far. Really happy with it. I think that there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of stuff to look forward to with it. And uh, I'm glad I switched. Have you considered editing the podcast in Fairlight so that you can get really good at the audio <laughs> features in Resolve? I have not considered doing that. That sounds potentially terrible, but no, I don't know. you should you should totally do it. And that way, uh, whenever you do edit a video, you're already an expert at just oh, the sound tab. There you go. Yeah, I do need to learn the sound tab. I'm curious to see what it has. I like that it basically has a full sound editor built in. That's a big improvement over Final Cut. So I, I mean, try it. it has everything that I ever used when I was using that. You know, well, what did the what's the um, M Audio software? Was it PreSonus? What was that software that they used to have? Well, M Audio is sort of associated with Pro Tools. I it, doubt that's. What I don't you think had. it was Pro Tools. I think maybe I had like a ex- Pro Tools Express or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, maybe so. Geez, this was like thirteen years ago or something. Yeah, yeah. It has all the features that I ever used in that software. <laughs> so. Wow. I bet it has more than Final Cut. Oh, yeah, certainly. Honestly, though, you don't need any of those features because you just use the voice isolation thing and you're good to go. It is crazy good. <laughs> I, I, we had, we should, we had someone shoot some interview stuff and like everyone was doing a bunch of setup and it's like during, you know, pre production for this music video that we did. And it's like just a bunch of background noise. And, you know, the person's five feet away and we're recording it to a road video micro. It's like, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like. <laughs> And I ran it through the noise isolation and it was just, it was unbelievably good. <laughs> Didn't you have to back it off a little bit? Yeah, was I was good. like, this sounds, it sounds like we recorded it in a studio. 
and you not can, like you we're can on see set. Pe- and you can see people walking around yeah. in the background. Like this sounds too good. Yeah, exactly. It's like how is everything behind them silent? I need some background noise for this <laughs> all of a sudden because it's too good. And so I had to like back it off to sixty percent just so that it sounded natural. Wow. Not that it didn't sound natural. Like their voices sound incredible. Yeah. Uh, but it's like I needed I need background yeah, noise you, all of a sudden because it's perfectly silent between every word. Yeah, you need you needed some environmental sound, but man, mm-hmm. that's a pretty good review of that yeah. feature. Yeah, I, it's it's just really good. Good to know. Man, resolve, am I right? Yeah, yeah, we could talk about that forever. Yeah, well, speaking of, you know, you mentioned Asus and all that yeah. workflow stuff. I'm I'm working on a video, Daniel. I think you know about this, but I actually started working on oh, it. Oh, wow. Earlier this week, last week, whatever, I set up a gray card um, with a window and like a, and a dark side behind it. Or like, you know, here, here's a window and then like inside, outside, and then a gray card. And I did like, you know, exposing for, I did F-Log 2 on my XH2S. And, you know, I, I shot to expose for the highlights, which if you look at a waveform, like you run your output through a monitor or something, if you look at a waveform on from the F-Log 2 on XH2S, it clips at roughly 80%. You'll like, you will never go up to a hundred percent in your waveform. You won't hit 1024. Okay. Um, it will clip at 80. And so you have to set your zebras to 80 if you're trying to do in camera, you know, zebras to save your highlights, which if you're shooting F-Log 2, you, sh- you should, you should expose to the right and, and, you know, save your highlights if you can and then recover the noise and the shadows and that sort of thing. So I did some stuff where I shot the gray card at 50%, like right up the middle. And then I did some stuff where I exposed to the right and I, I made sure that my highlights were, you know, right at clipping, right at 80%. And then I did some in the dark where I, you know, at zero. And then I did this again, but I did it outside and I set up the gray card in the yard and made sure I had some like sky. And then I put some gaff tape on how I part of the lens mm. so that it was perfectly black. Wow. And that way I had 80% to zero or, you know, roughly zero. And then I had the gray card exposed to 50% right on in the spot meter. And I was using the uh, small rigs waveform, which it has a spot meter on the waveform. I don't know if you knew about that. I didn't. Do you, you mean small HD? Yeah. On the small HD, you can set a point. And then if you have the waveform up, it will highlight in red on the waveform wherever you put the point. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Really cool. And so I had it set on the gray card and I could see, you know, in red, here's... I'm at 50, I'm at fifty percent, and on the small rig, it, it does it like that. It goes you zero. Keep saying to, small rig, you mean small HD? Golly, <laughs> the small HD five inch monitor that you can't buy anymore. <laughs> it goes from zero to hundred, which, and then if you bring it into Resolve, it goes from zero to ten twenty four, uh, which is ten stops or whatever. Yeah, um, you know, math, computers, eight bit, blah blah blah. I I don't understand those lines actually. Like whenever you're looking at a waveform, um, and it's like zero, whatever, hundred twenty, two ten, three twenty. Four, whatever, five forty. Are those each a stop? Every line up? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that either. Look that up. Like it probably matters. Whatever. Okay, so I would say we're basically setting it at fifty percent, which is going to be roughly like five five twenty or something in Resolve. Okay, so I did all of this in FLOG two, and then I brought it all into Resolve. And what I'm trying to get to is all the like we've talked about ASUS and IDTs and ODTs and that sort of thing on this on this podcast before. And if you're doing a color managed workflow in Resolve. What that means is like you're bringing in F-Log2 and then you need to convert it to some common color space, which could be Asus or it could be Brack 709, could be, could be something. But if you have footage from a bunch of different cameras or like I have, I have two Fujis, but like my I, my X-T3 is going to shoot an F-Log1 and my X-H2S is going to shoot an F-Log2. And so maybe I want to bring both of those in and convert the, X, the F-Log2 to F-Log1 and then edit everything to be color neutral in F-Log 1, and then I'll have like a final transform to Rec. 709 where I do my final grade. Right. Ideally, you want some way that you can get everything into a, a similar color space that you can edit it mm-hmm. all in the same way. Yep. And then that way, before the similar color space, you do your edits to get everything matchy-matchy, yeah. and then you do your creative grade after the common color space, but before the Rec. 709 conversion or whatever. Okay. So there is no ACES transform for F-Log 2. DaVinci Resolve does not have an F-Log 2 gamma. Right, so if you bring in a color space transform in DaVinci Resolve, you have your color space, which for F-Log is Rec 2020. And then you have to put in a gamma, which is, we've talked about gamma before, but like your luminance from 0 to 100% is a linear when you shoot in a, a log profile. Right. But you need it to be uh, like an S-curve of some shape. Mm-hmm. That's the gamma. Uh, and then you convert it down. And so because there's no F-Log 2 gamma, there's no like way to color space transform in Resolve. So what I have done is one, I've done like, I've read a lot of forums online and I found a tool that will help you build an IDT, which is a color space transform to ACES. And you basically treat it like a LUT. Okay. And you create this blah, 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 dot IDT file and you can drop it on your footage 
And the concept is like when you put this on your footage, it will be in ASUS 1 in a linear color space or a linear gamma. And then you can then color space transform it from now it's in ASUS. And then you can do your IDT, which is just a standard ASUS color transform back out to Rec. 709. Wait, so which one? ODT and IDC, which one's which? The IDT is in to get into ASUS. Into and ASUS. ODT is out to get okay. to Rec. 709 or whatever. Got it, got it. And so in a normal workflow, you'd bring in your footage and then you do your color space transform or you would do it all in like the top level stuff. But say you're doing it in the color tab in Resolve. You'd bring it in, you'd drop your color space transform to get it into ASUS. And then you drop your color space transform to get from ASUS to Rec. 709. The IDT is you treat it like a LUT and you just drop it on your footage to get into ASUS. What does this file look like? How do you create the file? Um, there's like a standard way to do it. I can drop it in the show notes, but basically there's a, um, this guy made a tool where you can like build one. And so I built one. What and then you, what do you provide it? Like, what are you doing to build it? What are you providing? As you're, input? you're providing it. So like the, there's going to be a white paper based upon your camera's gamma curves and stuff. And you give it information as far as like, here's the math equation for what this curve looks like. So you're putting in, you're putting in some numbers and it makes right. This and so it's like, here's a math equation with certain constants and you have to fill in those constants. I see. And then you have to fill in like a table as far as like, here's what middle gray is and that sort of thing. Okay. So you're, you're not giving it like a sample picture. Like, cause I know, I know the way you make LUTs is like, you can, you know, you can go in Photoshop and like build a LUT, but this is different than that. This is pure math. Yeah, it, it, it is. And I was going to, uh, I, I can show you one later, um, but it, it looks like code. So I, I exported one and then I took the numbers from Fuji and I swapped out the numbers so that it worked out and I made an IDT transform and I brought that into Resolve. Okay. And so pretty cool. I have the IDT transform. I have the, the F-Log2 to Eternal LUT, the F-Log2 to WDR LUT, which are provided from Fuji. And then I did a couple different alternate camera gamma curves. I used the Airy Log C3 gamma and I used the Panasonic V Log gamma. And I basically took all of these things, which I had the scope information for, and I color space transformed them to all, all six of those. I kind of transformed on them using the V Log gamma, the Airy Log C3 gamma, the Eternal LUT, the WDR LUT, and the IDT ASUS transform, and then transformed it from ASUS to Rec. 709 with a gamma of 2.4. Are you following me? Man, that. <laughs> First off, that is how I love to spend a Saturday, just mm-hmm. transforming things. Well, like, but I'm what I'm trying to get to is like, what is the what I want to be able to tell people in this video that I'm making is what is the what is the most correct thing that you can use to like get your F log two footage working. So like, I just like it's like where do you, where do you start if you can't use a game like the actual color transform because Fuji hasn't provided it, DaVinci Resolve hasn't provided it, it's not an ASUS standard whatever. It's like what do you do? Yeah. Okay. And so like, here's what I learned. One. The IDT ODT thing is okay. Let me actually pull them. Where are my where are my notes here? The WDR LUT that Fuji provides is the most correct neutral LUT that you can use. Which okay. I thought WDR stood for like wide dynamic range. That's what I would have guessed. And that's just not it's not the case. Like it's not for it's not for like if you're going to output in like HLG or HDR or something like that. I guess that's just what they called it. And so when, when I expose a gray card for 50%, when I do WDR as the LUT input LUT, everything maps correctly. My darks are right about where they should be. My highlights are clipping, which in F-Log 2, they were clipping at 80%. Now they're clipping at 100%. Oh, so it kind of like stretches it out. Well, yeah, well, because that's what you want. Like whenever yeah. you finish in Rec. 709, you want it to be, you know, corrected. Sure. And so it gets all those right, and then it gets the gray right in the middle where it's supposed to be. Okay. That sounds like a good discovery. Yeah. So, like, that's the big thing. If you're shooting in F-Log 2, and you don't want to deal with any of this, and you just want to slap the manufactured LUT on there, don't use a Turna. Use the WDR LUT. Interesting. If you're trying to get a neutral thing to start with to then mm, color match. Okay. Second thing that I learned, and this is all going to be in my video that I make eventually, but I, I thought this was all really interesting. I want to talk about it now. This video is going to come out never. Say like two months from now. Whenever I Which begin is probably to... when this episode will release. Yeah, probably. Okay. <laughs> Eterna, whenever I expose for 50% middle gray, so it's coming in at like 550 would be 50% middle gray on the Lumograph. Uh, Eterna exposed middle gray at 640. Okay, so a little so bit higher. So 50% to about 62%. Mm-hmm. And so it's, call it 10% brighter for the midtones. The other thing that I noticed was if you look at where I was clipping at the very highlights, that should be pretty close to white. And so if you look at like WDR, your red, greens, and blues are pretty close together. But on Eterna, the reds are 
lower. And so the the footage is actually greener. Uh, that basically. lines up with what I've seen. Every time I've looked at Eterna, that's what that's how it looks. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like the way Cinema stuff looks. So sure. like your your highlights are going to have a little more green in them. Mm-hmm. Your midtones are going to be not overexposed, but they're going to be brighter. And so if you're planning on exporting it to Eterna from um, F-Log 2, you basically are need to expose a stop darker or like 10%. Okay. But F-Log 2 is also noisier. Yeah. And so you have to watch out for that because it's, it's going to bring all that up, but there's gonna, just going to be a little bit more noise. And then everything in between was the mid highlights between middle gray and, and overexposed. Those were also 10% higher. And then the dark was about the same. It's not like the whole thing just shifted up because there was some movement in the compression of like, it's not like everything is just 10% brighter. It's like there's more greens in the highlights and the maybe the the dark parts didn't graze up as much as the midtones, but the highlights were much higher and that sort of thing. But it seemed like there was kind of more retained in the highlights. Okay. So uh, as you'd expect, Eterna is a look. Yeah, and, yeah, it's more stylized. Mm-hmm, but the most interesting thing I think that you got to take away from this is that if you're exposing for middle gray, a turner is going to look overexposed. That's yeah, that is interesting. It's going to have lifted shadows, and it's going to the skin tones and stuff are just mm. going to be a little bit brighter. Which maybe that's what you want. Like a turner has is really I like a turner a lot, but in this in this testing that I did, where I I was setting my highlights at clipping, a turner honestly looked bad. Yeah, uh, compared to like WDR and stuff. It's definitely good to know if you're if you're actually shooting with a waveform and you know paying attention to all mm-hmm. that stuff. That's that's pretty good to know. Um, the next one was the Asus IDT. Uh, it was also a little a little hotter on the gray, but just barely. It was pretty close. Um, what I did find with the converting into Asus was that it had way more contrast. The highlights were basically overexposed, and the darks were basically in black. And so, like, it didn't have it. It had too much contrast mm, okay. um, for the footage for converting down to Rec. 709, which Asus is kind of like um, a big range type codec. In order to, you know, I think it's big. It's it's bigger than Rec. 2020 which is what the color space that you're getting in F-Log 2. And so I think it's just kind of a function of trying to stretch this out yeah. into, into Asus to then work with. I didn't love it. I'm definitely not going to use that as my workflow. Interesting. Airy Log C3 is my favorite, which is w- weird enough. So like, if this isn't Airy Log, I, I'm not shooting an Airy Log, but like, you know, Airy has a pretty good dynamic range and all this stuff. And if you look at the white paper for Log C3 and you look at the white paper for F-Log 2, the middle grays are basically the same for those codecs and it's just that the the way that the highlights kind of fall off and and are exposed for the gamma is a little more natural for the airy and so uh whenever you do a color space transform so you do like rec 2020 and you set your gamma to area log three the middle gray is perfect it's like right at like you know right even if i exposed to 50 percent, it is at 50 percent. but it doesn't blow out the highlights it kind of it pulls them down just a little bit and it looks like there's just more information mm-hmm. there. And so it retains your highlight information a lot better. And it doesn't lift your shadows too high. And so as far as like the distribution of the curve, the highlights and the mid highlights are more evenly handled compared to Eterna. And then the middle gray is, is right exactly where it's supposed to be. That's really interesting. It sounds kind of pretentious to say like, oh, I like the airy transform the best. But I guess really what it is, is that it just so happens that the airy log input must be close enough to the F log two log input that this works. That's exactly what it is. It's close enough to F log two that you can use this. And for some previous videos that I've done, that's what I've done. So, like, if you want to use the built-in film simulations in uh, DaVinci Resolve, like the Kodak stuff, you have to transform them to Cineon. And so you do a color space transform to Rec. 2020, set your gamma to Aries C-Log 3, and then you bring that into Cineon as the output, and then you drop the LUT, which will convert it from Cineon into the film simulation. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that looks great. And I was just kind of like... I've heard of the people use log C3. I'm going to try it and it works. But now that I've done this testing, I can say with pretty good confidence that like area C log three is, I like the way it looks more than the WDR. Hmm. I think it gives me more kind of range and I like the way the highlights fall off better. I think it looks better and it definitely looks better than a Turner, which is pushing everything up. Yeah. Almost, almost a stop. Hmm. Then there's V log, which I've heard other people say that, you know, V log is probably similar. When you look at the grass for V log, it is basically a stop kind of in the other direction and they don't publish as much 
dynamic range on the V-log. And so like it only goes to negative nine and nine on their white paper, whereas the Fuji will go to like 12, I think. And oh, then the okay. area goes to 14. Wow. And that's because like, it's not like V-log doesn't have the stops, but I think it kind of lacks that information. And so it does compress it down more. And then middle gray is in the opposite direction where, you know, like if you're shooting at 50% and return is at 62 and a half, V-log is at 40%. So that, that seems like it's far enough off that it'd be hard to use that to do your conversion. Not, um, yeah, I wouldn't use V-log for the conversion unless you were specifically wanting to darken the image mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. coming straight out of log, which really you should just do that with editing. Yeah. And so I just, I wouldn't use V-log for this. I mean, that's basically where I landed. I know this is like, I'm just been monologuing for a while, <laughs> but I feel like all this is just really important as far as like, if you're shooting an F-log too, and you are actually wanting to, you know, do color workflows. And it's like, where do I start? I don't understand all these different LUTs that Fuji gives me. And what if I want to use color space transforms because it gives me all these other options? And what if I don't want to pay for film convert or nitrate and to do all these other things? Which I feel like I want. I want one of those. <laughs> but you're going to have to test that next, right? That's a totally different aside. Um, point is, either use the LUT with the WDR from Fuji or use a color space transform with Rec 2020 as your color space and Log C3 as your gamma. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting results and not something that most people probably would have assumed. Like, I think we both thought that WDR thing was uh, like a wide dynamic range HLG type thing. And I wouldn't have assumed that the airy thing was the right choice. It's, it, it, I would have guessed that if that worked, it was just kind of like luck. Yeah, and that's kind of how I felt. And I saw other people say like, oh, I like the way this looks and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but like, it feels like it feels wrong. Yeah. Like I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm purposely giving it the wrong input. And like, honestly, if, if the image looks good, great. But like, how, how do you know it's going to look good in every case or that, whatever? Yeah, it's like, I want something that's repeatable and dependable. Mm-hmm. But it and seems like that's what you've done now. Like you've done the testing. You can see how these things line up. And so you can see why it works. And that makes it make more mm-hmm. sense. Yep. So I'm... I'm pretty happy with like now kind of having my head around this a little better. And so I'm going to make a video about this and hopefully it helps other people out there. And I figured to talk about it here. So, I mean, the real solution would be let's get an F-log to gamma in DaVinci Resolve. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully Fuji will do that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, come on, just, just like work with the guys and like, let's, let's make it happen. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that's something to talk to Dr. Fuji about. Yeah. Next time y'all chat. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are, we are on the, on that level. So, yep. That's it. That was that was everything that I wanted to talk about. Good there. investigation. Woo. Looking forward to seeing the video. Curious to see if you can distill that down into something that'll work for video. But uh, I'm actually just going to take this audio and then uh, I'm just going to overlay it on um, some um, story blocks. Yeah, yeah, some story blocks. Maybe use some AI to generate mm-hmm. some stock images. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. And then perfect. this footage, this footage that I shot. So <laughs> anyway. Hopefully, hopefully that's helpful to you yeah. as far as like if you're if you're jumping into something to just color match and you want it to be neutral, use the WDR LUT. Man, I don't even know how to, I mean, I barely know how to apply a LUT. You're going to have to teach me how to do that and resolve. But, <laughs> oh. but uh, I mean, yeah, because for somebody like me, I don't want to spend all the time figuring this stuff out. I just want to know what setting should I use to get something mm-hmm. to work with. And so having work like this that you've done is useful because I can know just, you know, just use this thing and it's going to look good. And that's that's what I want. I just have always defaulted to the Eterna LUT because like the bleach bypass one looks crazy and yeah. I like Eterna just straight out the box. Right. And I'm not going to use the, there's one that's like F-log to F-log where it just passes the gamma straight through. And that's annoying because then you have to go through and do the contrast yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't super understand what that's for. So yeah, it seems like the WDR or the Eterna are the way to go. Right. And it's just, you kind of have to know going into it, what you're going to do when you shoot. Um, yeah, because you want to be able to expose properly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So surprisingly, that was the biggest takeaway. Yeah. The WDR LUT is your, I would think of it as like the standard Rec. 709 conversion mm-hmm. for F-Log 2. Interesting. I want to throw a wrench in your plans here. Uh, there is a setting on the Fuji camera that's like video level or something. Like there's like a, it's like video level and then something and like full range. Those are like two two options for the same setting. And I want you to try that out and see what effect that has on these waveforms. Because I don't know exactly what it does, but what you've been talking about makes me think that that has some impact on, uh, you know, what's actually recorded. And so I'm curious if that has any effect. This has to do with ProRes um, more than anything. You think it only has to do with ProRes? Yeah, there's a there's a thing where um, Mr. Undone himself, uh, I think, talked about it. But then also I have looked this up um, because I was curious and I can't remember all the details because I've, I've, as you could see by my face, I've mostly forgotten mm-hmm. exactly everything about this. But it does have to do with how you're outputting and the way that you're capturing in ProRes. I did all of my testing in 4K, 422, 
10-bit HEVC okay. at 320 megabits per so second. So you're confident that this setting doesn't affect those things? This setting should not affect those. Uh, my testing. Okay. Good to know. Yes. <laughs> Woo! <sighs> I feel like I've been talking for like 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's it. Good stuff. Public service announcement. I like Maybe it. Maybe this is helpful to somebody. Yep. Good deal. I hate to say it, Lucas, but we don't have time for your bonus topic today. <laughs> no! <laughs> I think it needs to be the first topic in the next show. I still think we record it as a separate show and release it as bonus content yeah. for some member special. I don't know. <laughs> first member special. Yeah, we don't, we don't have members. <laughs> but if we did, um, we could call it a member special. There you uh, go. People think we have members. Ooh. That's clever. Uh, an exclusive, non-exclusive club. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, would that be too many Fuji casts back to back? We're pushing the limit a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Oh boy, we'll see. We'll okay. see next week. We'll, we'll see if see. that happens. We'll just we'll just keep bumping it. Yeah. Ev- eventually, I will review every Fuji film simulation <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> could be next week. Could be next month. I could mean, be it, never. It could it could be a segment at this point. Yeah, <laughs> let's not do that. Let's not do that. Anything else today? Uh, I don't know, Daniel. Do you want to talk about IDTs a little more? <laughs> I I think we have beat that horse for now. Oh boy. Okay. That's it for the show today. Thanks for listening, and we'd encourage you to rate the show on iTunes and tell a friend, but only if you enjoyed it. You can find out more about us on our website at cameragearpodcast.com. We'll be back with more next week.